Hello and welcome to Queenstown Property Chat. I'm your host, Maria Rosa, a licensed real estate agent. Every week, I'll be bringing you fresh and current insights into the Queenstown property market so you can stay informed by the best local experts. and welcome back to Queenstown Property Chats. I'm thrilled to kick off a brand new season of the show. I'm going to be turning up the volume, diving deeper and bringing you longer episodes filled with thought-provoking conversations. And to kick off the season, um, I'm going to be playing you a conversation I had with Dennis about the fascinating world of high-performance homes. Um, You know, we all know that homes are more than just four walls and a roof. You know, there are sanctuaries, you know, the place that we retreat to from the outside world. How can you make our homes more than just a shelter? Well, that's what he's talking about today. You know, how can you enhance the well-being and conserve energy and how it contributes to a sustainable future? So I really hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Dennis is full of energy and, you know... DCD is a great company and I've left some links in the notes section for you to have a look and to see some examples of his work. So enjoy. Hi Dennis, so thank you for coming on to Queenstown Property Chats. How are you today? Very good, it's my pleasure to be here. Good, well let's get into it. I'm really excited about talking about high performance homes and you know what you do. So can you first just tell us a bit about yourself and your company? Yeah. Certainly, so I moved to Queenstown primarily for the benefit of our kids. Both of our children were really enjoying the outdoors. We came here on holiday and stayed at a family member's house and decided it was a great place to raise children. And I think that was one of the great beauties of being here is that you have the opportunity to run a business, uh, be in a really special place globally. And I think obviously by the accent, I've made the decision to be in New Zealand as well. Full stop. We are a 50-50 family, so half Kiwi Half American. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, I'm just a bit late, but my citizenship is coming. Oh, cool. Well, congratulations when that does come through. Um, And so when you're just talking about Queenstown, I understand the beauty, the mountains outside, but why have you chosen Queenstown for your business and to build here? When when I moved to Queenstown, I was consulting to different councils around the country at the time, uh, primarily in the leaky building space. And when... We started construction on our own home. Two things happened. One, the original builder who was going to do the work decided he wasn't able to do it. So I decided to undertake to build ourselves. And then the second reason was that I decided that in order to make the most of being in Queenstown, you needed to be in Queenstown. And traveling around the country three to five days a week probably wasn't the best way to make the most of being here. I think it is a really special place to be. And the opportunity to be here is an exceptional one that you should try to grab with both hands and make the most of. Yeah, definitely. I love Queenstown. I've been here for over five years now, but it's definitely home. That's <laughs> sure. awesome. Um, as you can tell by my accent, I'm from the UK, so <laughs> <laughs> I've also found myself here. But um, so can you explain to us what exactly a high performance home is? Um, you know, often you hear like energy efficient, passive homes, but what does it actually mean to have a high performance home? Yeah, that's a fair question. And it's a very tricky definition because I suppose from an objective standpoint, you could consider anything that is an improvement upon the building code, which then equates to an improvement in performance, makes a home higher performance. And that is oftentimes the position that's taken 
generally within the building industry for someone to promote their product to try to sell you something better, right? right? So if you're looking at the competitive landscape, you want to differentiate yourselves a little bit. You don't want to compete on price. What, you can, what can you do? Well, maybe we can put some things in there that improve the performance of your house, right? So from a marketing standpoint, high performance can mean a myriad of things. Okay. Specifically, when I talk about a high performance home, I'm talking about some very key and critical things that should be included in that. So one is it needs to be airtight. Airtight is right. It's a very simple thing to remember. Two, it must have a balanced air ventilation system. So something that takes the internal air volume of the home, exchanges it with the outside incoming air, and moderates that temperature. So if it's cool inside and warm outside, it will reduce the incoming air temperature. Right. If it's cool outside and warm inside, it'll warm the incoming air temperature. So suddenly if you're in the middle of winter, it's nine negative nine outside and you have your ventilation system on, then what will happen is that the air that comes into your home, if it's negative nine outside, will typically be around somewhere between 12 and 14 degrees. Right. So suddenly all you're doing is heating perhaps six degrees to right. get it up to temperature right. as opposed to heating it up 30 degrees. And is that technology that you're putting into the house or is it just materials that you're using? How, how does that work? Yeah, it's an interesting combination. Yeah. So the element that uh, I think really helps define a high performance home as well is that it needs to be thermally modeled. And so that thermal modeling then dictates some other steps that you might take with the home. So by example, our target for building performance is 35 kilowatts per square meter per annum of energy needed to heat the home. Okay. If you think about that as a comparative, most building building code compliant homes will be between will be between 120 and 160 kilowatts. Right, okay. So it's a real substantial yeah. increase. So anything under 50 kilowatts you would consider a high performance home if you want to look at it that way. But high performance homes aren't just about heating and cooling, they have a number of facets. So we talked about air tightness and, and ventilation. So when you talk about technology, I guess technology comes in a number of different facets. Mm -hmm. In the first instance, what we put into the home from a technology standpoint is the air tightness layer is quite technically capable. It does some unique things with allowing uh, moisture diffusion, but not air diffusion. So it, uh, it traps air, but it will allow a certain amount of vapor diffusion. So it will allow vapor to move within the home and the wall cavity. The external uh, building paper for weather tightness does the same thing. It's diffusion open, so it doesn't let water in, but it lets water out. It's got a certain technology on the face of it that turns your water bead into a circle as opposed to like a half dome. So normally if you put water on a table, it's in a half yeah. dome, right? Well, that means that the that at some level that, that uh, beading process, that water will be drawn into your building paper, for example, if it was allowed that way. So our paper has a circle circular. And uh, then lastly, the, the roof uh, building paper has that same technology integrated into it with a slightly different approach to it. So that will take a vertical load of water on it, standing water, and won't allow water through, whereas the building paper isn't designed at that same rigor because it performs a different task. So those are the types of technologies that are integrated into it. So you could argue that the ventilation system has a certain amount of technology in it, but re the reality is it's, it's some very simple ductwork. It's a very low voltage fan unit that runs constantly, and it's a ceramic plate that does the heat transfer. So it's what takes the energy in in the air in your home and mixes it with the incoming air to either to, to alter its temperature, right? So it's just a, a, and it's a passive system, right, in that respect. And then n none of those pieces in and of themselves are particularly technologically challenging. What is unique is that your ventilation system, you need to really consider 
and look carefully at its performance specifications because not all ventilation systems are created equal. Okay. There's a there's a couple that are at the very top of the performance market and then everyone else's numbers are more or less less reliable because they're not tested independently and they're not audited to a passive house certification standard. So right. important thing to remember in my mind is that the reason that we choose to focus solely on high performance homes and not on passive homes, because we do build passive houses, yeah. is that in my mind, what happens is I can tell you for a fact, if we can get a house down to 35 kilowatts an hour, we can get it to 25 really easily. Getting from 25 to 15, which is that passive house marker, is a much larger financial step. Also, it typically has a much greater influence on design, on building design. Okay, you're so, a bit more limited in your choices. Yeah, Absolutely. So for a passive home, you're building to certain wall floor ratios, you have certain window ratios you have to maintain, and you are achieving a very rigorous performance standard. So um, passive houses are amazing in that they take very, very little to no energy to run and operate from a heating standpoint. And I think, you know, kind of the old uh, humorous way to look at it is 12 cats can heat a passive house, right? right. So, so essentially every human, yeah. every human's worth about, um, uh, hold, give me a second, 400 watts of energy, okay. for example. And so you've got 400 watts of energy from every person that occupies the home that's helping to heat it, plus your refrigerator and your hot water and your, all those things, those provide the heat, right? But it's very restrictive architecturally, so it confines you to a certain space. And most times when I was to show you a series of slides, within a few moments, you'd begin to be able to pick out passive houses okay. really quickly. Okay, you'd be right? able to see that they've got the same sort of design and the way that they have to sort of do it. Yes, yeah. there'll be considerations that you'll begin to understand. It might be deep window reveals. It might be small windows. It might be thicker walls. It might be a more, um, a less architectural free-flowing shape or form to but the But with the high-performance houses, you're not just looking at that, just that one specific element. You're also just looking at how the whole house altogether is working and making sure it's to, its, to a high performance, I guess. Yeah. Absolutely. So you can take an architectural home. Yeah. And you can look across our portfolio of, of building construction and you can't pick out which one performs better than the other. Yeah. And that is because we've carefully modeled um, our homes. And so what you end up with is a house that looks like everyone else's home but performs to a much different standard. So by way of example, if you're talking about what high performance means in terms of dollars and cents, mm -hmm. uh, if you look at something like we have uh, the home that I live in at the moment, it's, it's just under 400 square meters of habitable, so living area, which includes garage. We heat our garages as well. Oh, wow. Okay. Garage and main house. We have five full-time occupants. Mm -hmm. We run an office out of it. Right. And our electricity bill uh, would be, I haven't had a bill yet for electricity over $200. Wow. Really? Now, part of that is because we have- I got my electricity bill yesterday. <laughs> yes. It was over $200. A lot more, right? Yeah, and not more. every room in your house is 21 degrees. No. No, for so sure. the whole house is warm. And like the whole house has got wind, water on the windows when you wake up and you're like, oh, God. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, and I understand that challenge, right? Yeah. So we first moved to Queenstown. We rented a place in Arrowtown. It had no uh, sunlight during the day. In winter, we woke up to ice on the windows. We were thawing out the outside deck and, and melting the snow outside in order to heat the house. We were cold most of the time. You could feel the different temperature from being upstairs to walking downstairs until finally you got out to the garage and it was just, you were frozen by that point, right? And through that whole process of living there, we were, we were building a house and I'd spent a bit of time trying to work out how to build it. And at that point, we knew we were going into a warmer home, but we didn't know what that meant. And I think oftentimes it's a real challenge to try to explain to people the difference in your lifestyle that you get from being in a really good quality warm house. And I'm not talking about an expensive house. 
I'm talking about a well-built home that's airtight, that's well-ventilated, that has triple glazed windows, that's really but well But to get considered. these features of a, you know, a high-performance house, do you need to be spending that premium price when you're when you're building in order to sort of reap those benefits later? Or is there any way to still get these high-performance features but not be spending like a lot more money than you'd usually be spending on a build? It's incredibly challenging, right? Yeah. So if you think about it from purely a product standpoint, you're putting in more product. So in a high-performance home, you're putting in more product. You're putting in more timber for your framing because your walls are thicker. You're putting in, and you're running an internal service cavity. You're putting in more product in your airtightness layer. You're putting in better products for your weatherproofing. We typically brace all our buildings, so you've got better bracing. Then when you add on top of that, you have more insulation. You've put in higher quality windows. You, You have put in the highest insulation value you think is valuable for the modeling for your slab on your on your concrete if you're slab on grade or you're using spray foam if you're elevated so you have all these other factors that cumulatively add value uh add cost sorry which of course do add value but they add cost and then on top of that one of the things that does occur is because you're building your home to an airtightness standard you have an inherent built-in quality control measure right because you are having to achieve a tested externally tested outcome you need to be under one air change an hour. Ideally, you want to be 0.6 air changes an hour. So when you talk about it from that standpoint, those elements all add up to further cost because typically there's more labor involved in the care and processing, right? So the best example I can give you is that if we were to build a two-bedroom home with a garage and we were going to do that on, on one lot and a group housing company was going to do it on the other and it was a price-driven business, I would suggest that between the two properties, you're probably talking about a difference of anywhere from $100,000 to $125,000 okay. all told. That's not as much money, actually, as I thought you was going to say, to be fair, to be putting in those sort of elements. I mean, obviously, it's a lot of money, <laughs> but I, it's not as big as of a gap as I thought. But then also just going back to like talking about architecturally designed, how do you balance having those high-performance um, factors and it looking good because as you said with a passive home there's a bit more restriction but there's not as much restriction then it's not as restrictive but it's still something that needs to be very carefully considered from the onset and i think the best way to talk about it is perhaps to talk about a parallel so if you have uh, if you're an architectural firm by example and you have built up a book of business then your your homes may have a particular style that they convey visually and your spaces may be defined in a particular way and often it can be really challenging to maintain purity in that respect if you've created this particular vision and create what you need to do in terms of a thermal break to reduce the amount of temperature leakage that you might have in or out of the building. So for those that have an established practice, it means a redrawing of existing details of what you're doing, et cetera. But when you're clean sheeting a building and you're not coming at it from, I need to need it to look a particular way, you're just trying to meet the client's brief, then what you're doing is you are doing, the, the way that we approach it is twofold. So in the first instance, we try to be somewhat unfettered, but mindful of what we're trying to achieve. So, and sorry, just to give the audience a bit of context, you have your own in-house design architecture team, don't you? Is that right? Yes, yeah. we do. We have, we, we have it, we do it in-house. We tend to collaborate with, with other architects and then we manage a lot of the uh, post-architectural delivery in-house with our team that's in in in-house and and so if you work from a clean sheet and you were and you are mindful of a few principles like not too much glazing to the north really careful about how much glass you put to the west um thinking about 
ensuring that you have enough areas for bracing, uh, perhaps being a little bit more considered about uh, the fineness of some of the building elements. If you do that on a first principle basis, when you first start building and designing and then you show it to a client, emotionally you have the client and the building in the right space. Everybody knows there's going to be some variance, but you've started in the right place, right? And then from there, it's just about refining the outcomes. So we have a building, for example, that has at the moment that's in design, we have a 17 and a half meter cantilevered roof on it, which is a big cantilevered roof, right? And there's no way to do that without having a lot of thermal um, bridging caused by your steel going from inside to outside. So if you think of a spoon being in a pot of boiling water, if you'd rather hold onto a wooden spoon or a steel spoon, you're going to hold onto the wooden spoon, right? So that steel in your building, that's what a thermal break is or a thermal bridge is. It's when you have that temperature difference and it's able to easily travel through one product but not the other. So you want to eliminate as many spoons in the boiling water as you can, right, and change them to wood. So in this scenario, we had to add a column. And that column meant that it mitigated all that thermal break. So it's those sort of steps that you actively take to reduce it. And you start it from the very first principle, and then you can get that building performance that you want. And to give you an idea, like if you do really good considered external shading and you make space for it, so these are these are essentially blinds that come down on the outside of the glass, not the inside. Oh, okay. I haven't heard of that before. Yes. Okay. To give you an idea, we've done we've just done some modeling on, on a house in design, and it went from requiring 19 kilowatts of cooling to 10 well, by having external shading. On the outside? Yes. Wow. And to give you some context, if you want to talk about another real-life example, we have a home. It is just under 400 square meters. Down the hill is a house that's right on 500 square meters. They're in the exact same climate. They're positioned the same way. They're looking in the same direction. Yes, there's 100 square meter differences between the homes, but it's not that significant. So one home's 20% larger than the other. We require... 14.5 uh, kilowatts of heating in our home, Wow. Okay. which is one heat yeah. pump, they require four. Wow. So when you talk about performance, that's yes. where you begin so to see, see it. Yeah. We have another house, home, family's been in it for a very short period, period of time. Five people live in it. They run the heating at 22 degrees. They use a lot of water and their electricity bill last month, no solar, just their pure cost to do their lighting, uh, hot water, spa they've got a spa as well four hundred dollars so it's not all about the dollars and cents but it is kind of a nice tick that you get right that you know your electricity costs have gone down and the other thing that happens when you build to a high performance home when you build it airtight when you consider the structural requirements of it when you're building for something that has a significant amount of durability what you also end up with is a home that's incredibly quiet on the inside and it's a really joyful place to yeah, and more of that peace than all those sort of outside noises. And Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, right now we can hear cars going by and other things here, right? You wouldn't hear that if you were in one of our homes. It would be as if it wasn't there. I have fallen asleep on the couch uh, on a lazy afternoon, woken up quite frustrated that someone was mowing. Yeah. And what had happened was someone had opened the window. The whole entire lawn was mowed. I just heard the last pass because the window got opened. Oh, wow. That's how normally how quiet it is. Oh, yes. That's, I need to live in a, a high-performance home now. Um, so for regular homeowners, is there any way that they can refurbish their home or re-renovate their home to add in these high-performance um, features without fully tearing all the walls out and adding in extra beams? Or yeah, it's, it's an incredibly difficult challenge to achieve, right? And so we do roughly one and a half renovations a year. And 
we typically tend to only do the renovation if we can improve the performance of the house. Otherwise, we feel like it's probably perhaps not quite right for us as a business, right? And for one renovation, we stripped all the internal wall linings. We replaced all the windows. That's quite significant. And we redid the cladding, right? So you basically, the house framing stood, but we redid everything else. So at at that standard... The client came in, no windows were in. We had building paper over the windows. We had done the insulation. We had done some of our other remedial work. They came in during the middle of construction in the morning and they said, this is warmer than this house is when we lived here. Wow, in the middle of the construction. <laughs> With no windows in or anything else. So that is how transformative improving the building performance can be. And what we suggest to do is if you are in a position where you only have a few dollars, you don't have the space for a significant renovation, and you want to try to make your house work better, what are the things you can do? Well, in the first instance, we talk about air tightness. That is really critical. So go around and find out which windows are leaking air, what seals are bad, are your doors not adjusted properly? What can you do to stop the outside air from coming in unfettered into your house, right? So do that. The second thing you want to do is, and this is often more challenging if you have old light fixtures, but you want to put in the most amount of insulation basically that you can fit into your ceiling void. So if you you can go up to about R7, R8 without having any real difficulties, get it into that attic space. That's really important. And ideally, you would save some money and convert to lights that can be fully covered by your insulation. Because if you can imagine, if you've got a hole in your ceiling and you've got this warm light in there, so it has hot air rising, so it's creating a, a vacuum underneath, so it's sucking the warm air out of the house, And when you pull that warm out of the house, then cold air has to come back in, right? So it's a massive amount of heat loss going through there. I didn't even think about a light (laughs) like that. That makes so much sense, though. So So it's quite significant, those small things. And then if, let's say, you were thinking of replacing your carpet and you've got a, a concrete slab and you've got no insulation underneath it and it's really cold, put down 12 mil of plywood over the whole floor, glue fix it down, screw it into place, and you'll notice an immediate difference in temperature. When you build your homes, do you do like a post-construction monitoring to make sure it's still um, high performance like five years later or even like a year later to make sure that everything is still holding up? Or so That's a good question. I think in the, the very quick answer is no. Uh, the longer answer is that yes, we do that. And, and the way that we do that is we keep track of... Um, Everyone who we've built with, we've been in contact with at different times in their build. Ask them, what are your utilities bills like? What problems are you having? What's working really well? What isn't working well? So we have uh, a lot of feedback from clients. We're not using thermally broken aluminum joinery. We're using wood, wood aluminum, so timber joinery, or we're using PVC. It's all triple glazed, not double glazed. We're using 190 mil of insulation. Yeah. You know, some of our houses have quadruple glazing for skylights, right? And, and that's a key thing to remember as well. Skylights are half the R value of a window. And, and kind of a, something important to remember is when you're thinking about designing your own house, think of your windows as being the same thing as like a cash value, right? You only have so many square meters of window you can spend. So where are you going to spend that money on glass that's really important? And the reason I say to consider it that way is that If you think of a really, really good window being an R1.2 rating, okay, that wall next to it is going to be about an R5, say, and your your R1.2, you're half the value, right? So your window's half the value. For our walls, it's one-fifth of the value, sorry, 20%. So in that context, you need to be really mindful of where you spend your window value. 
Now, the big difference is a triple glazed wood aluminum window, you don't get a draft. So I can put your hand here and you're not going to feel it. You're not going to feel the cold coming through. There's ice on the outside pane in the morning. But my wall is might be 20 degrees. My window jam will be 20 degrees. My window frame might be 19, 19 and a half, and my glass will be 20. All staying that temperature. Whereas I can tell you if I use triple glaze, thermally broken joinery, I hide the thermal break inside the wall cavity, I do all the right things. If it's zero degrees outside, my window frame is going to be nine. Massive difference, right? And if I don't have really good slab ins edge insulation, what's going to happen is that if the outside temperature is four below, the inside temperature of that slab at that point is going to be something like 12 degrees, even though within 300 mils, the slab temperature is 28. Oh, wow. That's how much the heat loss is with even a bad performing thermal break. So you really need to get those thermal breaks right, and it makes a massive difference. The same thing as the first 600 of the wall. If you can't get your steel isolated, let's say you put the steel in the outside, inside the wall frame itself, so outside or, or in the middle of the thermal envelope, the first six to 700 of your wall, your steel will be colder by up to 10 to 12 degrees than the rest of that wall is, and it'll start warming it up as it goes up. So that's why it's so important when you talk about a high-performance house that you're talking about all the facets and elements of it, not just things that you can talk about and tick off on a brochure, right? More insulation or better windows. It's the fundamental integration of all those elements together that's so critical to get it to work right. And when you do that, you then end up with a product that uh, gives you a much, much better place to live. And that is not, uh, unfortunately, something I can give you as scientific evidence. But I can tell you that we've moved in families with children. They get sick, they would get better. Yeah. It wasn't get sick, stay sick, kind of have the sniffles. Yeah. Oh, I just can't kick this thing. You know, you've heard that before, right? You weren't having that. <laughs> Absolutely. So and that's all the all the fam, all the kids, all the excuse me. All of the families who have moved into our homes with smaller children have recorded the same experience. And on the other side of the coin, if you're aging, right, and you build a home and you think this is my forever home, I'm going to die here, so to speak, right? It's where, you, it's where you're going to make your customer's last stand is going to happen there in your home. And you go in and let's say you're in your late mid to late 60s at that time, right? So you're still fairly resilient. Typically, you're, you're moving a lot, you're active, you're doing a lot of things. Well, what happens is you get into your late 70s, you're still in that same home, right? But your sense of temperature has changed, what you find comfortable, your desire for better light has changed, right? So our homes consider that outcome. So if you move into our house, and we've had this happen, where um, an older couple moved into the home, they complained and asked if we could find a way to turn the heating down in their bedroom because it was too warm. So we, we set that up. They slept with the windows open in winter, right? That was just how they were used to living. Within three years, the house is all shut up. They've raised the temperature. And they're now living in a house that's the same temperature everywhere. They've used all of the dimmable lights to full brightness, you know, most of the time. So those pieces have been really important to get right when you're looking at building a home. You know, oftentimes we tend to think about our very narrow window of what our experience is at the moment. Yeah, what we want right now, just in even just the next five years, and yes. that's it. Yeah, but when you're thinking about 20, 30 years, and like you can with a high-performance home. Absolutely. So when we go back to the feedback that you get from past clients, do you ever get any negative feedback? Or feedback where you're like, that's just something that is just maybe a slight negative of a high-performance home? Or is there... Not any negatives that you can think of besides maybe a cost? You know, that's a really good question. I mean, I think um, 
we have taken we, we've taken people on a pretty good journey usually by the time they work with us there's there's kind of the feedback i could give you that's a little bit self-congratulatory uh, but it's also true and i've heard it from a number of clients which is that it's really destroyed their experience going to other places so they go to an apartment or they stay in a lovely hotel and they can't get over the noise or the smell or the lack of fresh air right Absolutely, because a ventilation system right means you have fresh air in your home all the time. So if you close your house up, you're not closed up. Yeah. Your windows aren't shut. You're not dealing with stale air. You still have that ventilation coming through. I, I, I am struggling to think of negative things, and I think it is important to talk about negatives uh, because there is no such thing as the perfect catch-all. That is a whole new experience living in a high-performance home as well because not everybody, ha- obviously, the standard person doesn't. So it will be like a more premium level of living, which is good and um, just before we start to wrap things up do you see the legislation changing um in new zealand to support all these high performance features that will mean that you know we'll see more homes over the next like five ten years that are actually you know the standard is basically you know the minimum of high performance do you think we'll see that it's a really good question um i think i could answer that perhaps by paralleling a couple of different things so when i did leaky building repair i was asked the question are we done? Are we done building leaky buildings? And I can tell you categorically, we are not. And the reason we are is because the way that um, we go about learning in New Zealand is quite different than my experience in America, for example. So in the U.S., uh, I love this analogy because everybody understands it. In the U.S., if you want to know how to get somewhere and you ask someone, how do I get to you know, the movie theater, yeah. they'll tell you to take 163rd West to 14th Terrace, make a right on 14th Terrace, go to 3rd Avenue, make a left, and on the right hand, you'll see 162nd Street, and that'll be where the movie theater is, right? If you ask that same question of someone in New Zealand, they'll say, do you remember where the old sawmill used to be? You make a right there, then you'll see the Dairy Queen, make a left at that, go to the, right? So if you think about what that means from a cultural standpoint, it really showcases that the way that we have often work with our learnings within the building industry as a whole is our experience is hugely influential on that. So we learn from the fellow that he learned from, that he learned from this person before, right? So all that knowledge is passed on, which means when you're trying to implement change, it can be incredibly challenging because it isn't something that comes naturally. People aren't necessarily really open to change because New Zealand is, uh, I think, a really interesting and and amazing combination of self-reliance and autonomy, right? And I love that. That's absolutely what I love about it. But it makes it really hard at times to affect change, especially in an industry that is, in, in many respects, slow to change anyway. So I think that's a challenge. The second piece that goes with that is when you're looking at legislation, you're trying to legislate improvements. Um, I think it's really difficult to be bold in the government. I think the government really is really challenged with that, right? Because the first comment that comes up is you can't push people out of housing by improving the quality of housing, meaning they can't have one as well, right? There's a, there's a dichotomy to that. But I keep going back to, because I had the benefit of being here when, when it changed from single glazing to double glazing, it didn't affect the bottom line of house prices, right? You know why it's more expensive to build the way we build right now? Because there's so limited supply, right? The competition isn't present, right? So when I started building these homes nearly 10 years ago now, it was really hard to find suppliers. You were doing really difficult things. And now it's become more mainstream with our, within our little bubble of Queenstown, and there's pockets of it elsewhere. But by and large, New Zealand doesn't sort of embrace this change. Why do we need it? What does it need to happen? I mean, when the building code change has just gone through, was implemented, the amount of pushback from the building industry was tremendous about why do we need to do this? It's not necessary, et cetera. 
And I have found that in my own personal experience that oftentimes what we do, it's really challenging to get people to understand why you do it. Now, at the moment, um, we've been in business long enough that our clients align to our thinking for the most part. So it's a pretty easy yeah. journey. But if I took you into one of our houses, that's all I would have to do. Yeah. You would just have to walk around for 10 minutes. You'd be like, wow. <laughs> yep. And this isn't about, I'm not talking about things like how nice the floors are, yeah. what the kitchen's made out of. I'm what not talking feel. about that. Absolutely. Yeah. It's the fact that it's quiet. Yeah. It's well ventilated. I mean, I've got this house that we're building in Cromwell. I absolutely love this couple because they have knowingly gone into it. They've put kind of every dollar on the line to get a better house yeah. where it's, it's not big. Yeah. It's not flash. But they're going to have this really lovely home to live in. And it's going to be that way for perpetuity. They're going to raise a child in it, right? They're going to have their first kid. So, you know, all those things, that's what we need to be doing, right? That's where the industry, I think, has really gone quite I think that's a good astray. point that you've just made there, that you can do high performance without it having to be flash as well. I think that's a really good point. Well, that's where it's come yeah. from, right? And I yeah. think that's what's made oftentimes my conversation with other people. It can feel a little bit disingenuine, right? Because you're like, you should build high performance homes. And in the background is a, a multi-million dollar property. You're like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. It's like the Ferrari guy telling you to be more fuel efficient, right? And whatever guy. And I think that's the challenge. But And, and so I set out and uh, to try to build homes that were for the everyday man, recognizing that we were never going to compete on price. You can, you can go out and get a cheaper house. You cannot go out and get a better performing home. You know, and I'm really comfortable with that. I think there is a... Rec- there is a a misalignment in part between uh, the value the valuers in the industry that value homes and properties, uh, real estate agents, and and homeowners, right? And that misalignment, and when I say that, I think um, I say it quite respectfully. The misalignment is that um, there seems to be this unnecessary focus on creating wealth within your property, specifically related to how it will market and how long it will take to resell, right? So you need to do this because that will attract more buyers. You need to do that because that will attract more buyers. Well, I have a history of building quite unique homes, homes that that appeal to a certain segment of the market only, right? And even within that market segment, a smaller group again, right? So my own personal house, which we sold a couple of years ago, it was a three-bedroom home. And we knew when we built it that building a three-bedroom home was going to be a bit of an Achilles heel. That being said, it's a beautiful home. It performs well. It set a record for sale because we knew the buyer out there would there would be someone just like us who wanted what we built, right? And I think that's the message that I would love to see the real estate industry pick up, which is that, look, especially if we look just at Queenstown, you're in a really amazing spot globally. You're in an amazing spot within the country. You're in a super desirable location. You are not so unique that nobody wants, nobody else on the planet wants what you build, right? And that's where I think the fallacy exists. The fallacy that we do not need to be appealing to everyone. What we need to do is build a quality home to the best of your financial capability and make it to a size that suits your budget, right? So if you want to build a good quality home and you only need a two-bedroom house, build a damn good two-bedroom house. Don't put the third bedroom on for resale value. Don't put the flat on for resale value. Don't shoulder yourselves with that. If you build a good home, you will get a good price for it as well because people recognize quality. I, I would definitely agree with that as well because I think sometimes, you know, often people, you, you do have a lot of people asking real estate agents, like, should I build a three-bedroom house with a home and income? Should I build this? Like, what do people want to see and buy? I do think it's a good point that if people, when they look out, they look at who's built the house, they look at the materials that's been used. Those are things that people go down to and they want to know, especially when they're getting the builder's report. You know, it's such an important piece of document. 
So I think it's a really it's a really good point. It's not always about having those extra like three part garage, whereas opposed to if you had a nicer, warmer house that would still suit a family, it didn't have the three garage, but it was warm, it would probably do better. Then yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think for me the the, the again I go back to the house in Cromwell because I just love what these guys are doing. It's a two bedroom house, yeah. right? That's a starter family home. Yeah. The garage is almost the same size as the house. Now, what do we do in this region? We play, yeah. right? We have toys, we have hors d'oeuvres, we entertain. So if you're, if, if you've got two kids under what, six years old and you're, and you're a couple, that house will suit you for years, right? So that's a house that's at least good for, if you moved in with no children, that's a good seven years. Now, the reality is most of us, if we looked at our life in seven year increments, it's not so fixed that we really need to look beyond that, that, that horizon, right? And one of my own guys came to me and he said, what should I build? And I said, you should build small. He's like, oh, I'm being told to build bigger. And I'm like, you're not special. (laughs) You're not special. There's other people that want exactly what you have. And, you know, you talk about this issue about having a a barrier to entry within the Queenstown market. Well, you know why the barrier to entry exists? How many one-bedroom houses are there? How many two-bedroom houses are there? How many three-bedroom houses are there? You really get the apartments that are in those one or two bedrooms. Yeah, that's very true. But if they did have those... Small versions, they would probably get snapped off like that. Absolutely, right? Smaller lot, smaller space, every, you know, it, it scales down. So you're not putting as much capital in to get it started. You're not getting as much on the other end, but you are going to get your money back. And, and you know, the like this house that we're building, it's probably going to cost them 100 bucks a month to run that house, maybe. Right? And they're going to be warm. Every room's going to be warm. It's going to be quiet. And, and I think that's what you really need to be focused on because the buyers are getting smarter. The rest of the world has moved on, right? Suddenly everybody realizes there's this real transition that's happened over the last decade where being building a really good, energy-efficient, warm house has, has gone from fringe to mainstream. So, and when you build lovely homes, so we're not talking about the entry market. So in the entry market, what you're trying to do is you're trying to really cut a very fine line between building performance, cost, and building size, right? And that's the balancing act. And you need to be committed to building warm because... You're gonna, there's going to be a sense of missing out because everything's going to be a little bit smaller than what your neighbor did, right? But you're going to be happier. Trust me, you're going to be healthier. You're and your friends and your guests are going to feel it when they come over and Absolutely. they're sleeping and it's quiet. And they're like, well, I didn't hear anything last night. And you're yeah. like, they only live down the road normally. You know? So you'll get all those things, right? Yeah. But when you're building in the architectural space where you're building these large-scale homes that are that are um, lifestyle properties, they're, they're gorgeous to be in, they have luxury amenities available within them, the cost to build it warmer is often as small as 1%. You know, these are these are foundational changes and transitions. So if you I could take any code minimum house right now and I could make it 50% more efficient without doing without adding any cost by simply changing the way that they assembled the building. Pretty much every group builder right now in Queenstown could improve their building performance by 50% by just addressing the way that they frame their building and by changing the height of their knee on their truss. I would have said that at worst case scenario, it would add a few hundred dollars to a house cost, right? And they could make their home perform 50% better than they do right now, which sounds ridiculous, but it's true. Really easy to do. And they could do a couple of things with every house, thinking about where it is on the lot around orientation, small things that would have almost no cost to anyone and really improve performance and use that as the blueprint for why they're better, right? Because I think this idea of competing on cost is really misleading. It's misleading for everyone because... When you're building a home, it's very rare that you get to walk into the home that you're going to live in, right? That you get to walk into this brand new home, 
you get to see the taps you're going to use, you get to see the carpet you're going to use, the wall color, the paint, the doors, you get to see all that. And then you commission that exact property to be built for you somewhere else, right? That's a really rare occurrence. So if we equate the home building experience or try to parallel it to a car buying experience, how would you feel about going into a dealership, seeing pictures on the wall, picking your car out and knowing what car you're getting? You'd feel really disoriented, right? And yet we seem to have this unreasonable confidence about what we're getting when we're building houses, right? And yet it's just as daunting, should be just as daunting as going in and and trying to pick out your car from a picture on the wall. And so that's why I strongly encourage people to really think about what are they trying to do when they build. I think that we have a, a responsibility to build for our health and, and for the health of the people that will come beyond us when they move into these properties. And making really good decisions early around building efficiency and thermal modeling will make the world a difference to how um, we can leave the housing stock for that next generation because what we've inherited, like if I go to Fern Hill, that place will all be demoed and rebuilt over the next 20 years. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it definitely will. It's, it's a tipping point now, right? Everyone's sick of it. No one wants to live in houses like that. We've got a property in Fern Hill that is going to be warmer than the owner's property where he lives in a much warmer part of the client country. And Fern Hill is amazing. I love Fern Hill. Views up there. It's really, right? really nice out there. So, but everybody's always like, oh, you're cold if yeah. you live in Fern Hill. Yeah. Build a warm house and yeah. you're not, right? If you build a warm house, it doesn't matter. We have a house that is, has all glass, fully south-facing because that's where it is. And we've supported that by doing other things in the building that have allowed for that to happen. That house, the owner knows if the refrigerator is running because the living room's two degrees warmer than any other room in his house. That's the level of efficiency you can get out of a well-built home. That's really good. Well, Dennis, before we wrap up then, any last points or key tips that you want to give the audience today? Oh, that's a real challenge. I think I think my key thing is if you're thinking about building, uh, airtight is right. Go for the best glass that you can afford because that's the biggest hole in your wall. Make sure you have a performance standard in the contract. And if you do airtightness, you want to be under one air change an hour. Uh, ensure that you have slab edge insulation well considered in terms of how you're putting your home together. And consider overheating, which we didn't talk about much, but overheating, once you start building warm, it's very easy to overheat in the shoulder seasons with those lower sun angles with still lots of solar energy in it coming into the home. So let, allow your landscaping or external shading or louvers to take care of it because once the heat's in the home, you can't get rid of it. Oh, good. Well, Dennis, it was great to have you on. Well, we have to get you back on again. <laughs> There's so much more questions <laughs> I could ask you, to be honest with you. Um, but it was great to have you on today and um, we'll speak to you soon. Thank you for the invite. <laughs> So I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Next week, I'll be talking to someone from the Bailey's property management team to see what is going on in the rental space in Queenstown and give you some updates there. So until next time, don't forget to subscribe because I've also looked at the stats and over 70% of you that listen don't like or subscribe to the podcast and it helps me out in more ways than you could think. So don't forget to subscribe because it will also give you updates when new episodes are out. And remember, you can connect with me in multiple ways. You can reach me directly at 021-088-34181 or email me at maria.rosa at baileys.co.nz. You know, I'd love to hear your thoughts or any suggestions and ideas for future episodes. You know, your feedback means a lot to me. 
And don't forget to follow me on all the social media platforms, especially Instagram and Facebook, because I'll be putting up polls for you to be able to ask some questions ahead of my guests coming onto the show. Thank you once again for joining me on Queenstown Property Chats, and I can't wait for you to see next week's episodes.